What do I wish? I, I wish it wasn't an issue. I, I wish LGBTQAI plus people didn't have to fight. And I, I don't wish, I wish no one had to fight uh, for equity and equality. It's, 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 um, it's 2021, man. <laughs> and we're still talking about this. And yes, we've made strides. Absolutely. The fact that I even can be out and open with my wife in public, that's a big stride. But the fact that there's still people trying to pass laws against us, and especially trans folks, uh, it's like enough is enough. Let people be who they are and let them serve. That's Beach Pace, West Point grad, Army vet, and nonprofit CEO who currently serves as a member of the Hillsboro City Council in Hillsboro, Oregon. She's an amazing servant leader and a proud member of the LGBTQAI plus community, and we're thrilled to lift up her voice on this Pride Month episode of our podcast. I'm Dr. Max Clow, Senior Director of Leadership Development at New Politics, a bipartisan organization dedicated to revitalizing American democracy by recruiting, supporting, and electing servant leaders who put community and country over self. On every episode of this podcast, I sit down with a servant leader who has chosen to serve again through politics, and I'm very excited to share today's conversation with you all. Beach grew up in New Jersey and felt the call to serve in the military at a young age. She attended West Point and after graduation volunteered to serve in the ordinance branch, both domestically and overseas. As a bomb squad executive officer, she led teams that defused bombs and improvised explosive devices around the world. And during her military service, she was involved in State Department security operations for the United States President, Vice President, Secretary of State, and other senior political leaders. As a member of the LGBTQAI community, she served all those years during the Don't Ask, Don't Tell policy when queer individuals could be discharged from the military if their sexual orientation was made public. She eventually left the military and entered the corporate world, where she worked in pharmaceutical sales. She was quickly promoted to team leader and was put in charge of the lowest performing team in the organization. Within six months, she had led the team to first place in sales. After nine years in the corporate world, she found herself missing the sense of purpose she used to feel in the military. And that's when Beach made the jump to the social change sector, where she served as the executive director of City Year San Jose, where she took a site that was $750,000 in debt to financial health during the recession of 2008. Beach now serves as the CEO of Big Brothers Big Sisters in Columbia Northwest, an organization serving more than 500 youth and their mentors. Equally important, after years of being told that she should run for office, Beach finally decided to enter politics by running for the city council in her town of Hillsborough, Oregon in 2018. She won that contested election with 67% of the vote. On this episode, she discusses what it was like to serve in the era of Don't Ask, Don't Tell, what she learned about leadership from her time in the military, and why she thinks the opportunity to serve again through politics is worth the risks and challenges. Beach and I first crossed paths many years ago when we both worked at City Year, and I've been inspired by her for years. She is a truly remarkable servant leader, and I'm thrilled and honored to lift up her voice on this Pride Month episode of our podcast. Beach Pace, thank you so much for being with us today. Super excited, Max. Thanks for having me. Awesome. So here's where I always like to start. What is your earliest memory of learning the value of service? Oh, my gosh. Um... My uh, 
both my parents served in different ways. My father was a Rotarian and my mom was an Eastern star. And so I don't know I, what an Eastern star is. Say, say more about that. I have no idea. Uh, <laughs> it's a service organization for women. Yeah. I remember that she had to memorize things. She had to learn an oath and things like that. Um, I also remember that, you know, women weren't allowed in uh, to Rotary at the time. And so it's, it's really interesting to think about, I've been a Rotarian, I've been a Rotarian in two different clubs, but when I was a young girl, I wasn't, that wasn't in my future. <laughs> and my mom wasn't allowed to be a part of it. So not only did I get introduced to service, but I got introduced to exclusion. Mm. So, and that my mom had to join a separate group. If she wanted to serve, she had to join a separate group than my father. Um, and I remember noticing that. Anyway. All right. <laughs> and you, can you tell me a little bit more about kind of your family and your life growing up, kind of a key experience or two along the way? Yeah, sure. Um, I grew up in Jersey and um, my parents were active in the community. I um, was an okay student. I loved sports. I played soccer since first grade all the way into college. Um, I learned a lot being in New Jersey and seeing the different um, groups of people you know, moving through the world, uh, we were known as WASPs, white Anglo-Saxon Protestants. Um, and we were surrounded by Italians, Irish, Jewish, all sorts of different people, all different walks of life. Um, at the time, it was amazing to me. And I realized that I saw a fraction of what is actually in the world, right? Mm. Um, but I, I remember just the delineation and how interesting it was to cross lines um, so it was just something I noted and as a wasp and a clueless kid, I was able to cross those lines without any problem. But as I got mm. older, things were made clear, like, well, you wouldn't date him because he's this. Mm. And I was like, oh, okay. <laughs> um, yeah. So I learned a lot about that, but I also, you know, was exposed to a lot as well. And I could I lived in the suburbs and there were woods and, uh, you know, things to do in the woods, you know, building forts and such, but right. then there were the cities, right. I could go to New York, I could go to Philly. Um, so it was, it was a really interesting place and way to grow up for me. Awesome. And you chose to enroll at West Point for college. Was that an easy choice? Was it, tell us a little bit about how that happened for you. It was an easy choice, but it wasn't necessarily, uh, an easy in. Um, because you have to apply and then you have to get interviewed. You have a physical fitness test. You have a health test that you have to pass, um, you know, a physical that you have to do. And um, that seemed at the time, it just seemed like a lot of hoops to jump through to get in there. And as a teenager in high school, it's just like, okay, what now? Um, and I was slowly dipping my toe into this military life. Um, for example, my physical was at an, uh, a naval base, right? And so I, I am totally, at the time, completely clueless about where I am or who is what and, and all that. But, um, and then the physical fitness test was at Fort Monmouth, New Jersey. And you go in with all these other candidates who are trying to get into West Point and do your best on these tests. So, and I remember of the whole group that went to test, one guy 
made it into the academy and and I did too. And I remember seeing him. I was like, oh my gosh, I know somebody. That guy. Uh-huh. <laughs> so. But help us understand a little bit. Where did the, the, I mean, it's still a pretty, you know, 1% of the country serves in the military. Where did this understanding that that was going to be your path come from? Well, I always was interested in the military. I watched, um, you know, war movies, I guess. I was into that. I was into military history. I thought it was very interesting. My high school uh, history teacher, Nelson Majuri, was a former Marine, and he was supportive. I was in junior ROTC, Air Force junior ROTC, and um, Master Sergeant James influence as well. Both these men were very supportive of me and never hesitated as I expressed interest in the military. And so, so they kind of helped me along. And then I heard about the academies and I remember thinking, oh, that's for the smart people, not for me. And, um, <laughs> and the, these two men and other people were like, no, actually, I think it is for you. So as I learned more about the academies and, and what I was most interested in, West Point piqued my interest because there's this poster and it has a picture of Eisenhower and MacArthur um, and some other military leaders. And underneath, it's just one line. It said, history was made by the people we taught. It was very powerful to me. Um, anyway, so I did a visit, mm-hmm, <laughs> um, mm-hmm. a campus visit where I stayed in the barracks and um, went to a football game. Of course, they showed the best side of all of it, you know, and but I enjoyed it. I enjoyed being there and and the, having to wear a uniform and not being able to leave post and, and not being able to party and all that. That was fine to me. That was inconsequential to me. I was most interested in learning leadership and being a, a member of the military. And I, I was highly idealistic, ridiculously idealistic, um, but it served me well. <laughs> so. Tell us a little bit more about what you learned about leadership from West oh, Point. Man. I mean, you know, it's a big question. Point. Yeah, it is a huge question. At West Point Just is a couple set up, highlights. Yeah, uh, West Point is set up in such a way that your first year, it's about you, where you are learning to essentially lead yourself and be led. Can you get up in the morning? Can you be in uniform, proper uniform every day? Uh, Can you do the, um, there are three things they judge you on is leadership, academics, and physical fitness. And so can you perform all of those duties properly? And you have tiny leadership opportunities as a freshman. And then as a sophomore and junior and senior, um, you get more leadership opportunities with more people. And in the leadership and physical side, I excelled. I, I loved it and always got very good grades with that. And, um, you know, the academics were a challenge. I found out later that my high school was rated second to last in New Jersey as far as its academic rigor. And so I paid for that, um, mm. meaning I, I went to summer school. Um, I struggled a lot, but I also realized that I can overcome. <laughs> mm-hmm. So... Um, and the leadership highlights, I think, of, hmm, there, there is something called the 11 leadership principle, Army leadership hmm. principles. And I remember reading them my freshman year, and I was like, yeah, these are okay, because, you know, I, I know everything. Right. And uh, now, at 52 years old and being in leadership positions since I was 18, in some capacity, they are right on. <laughs> give us, and, give us uh, your favorite two. Um, 
know yourself and seek self-improvement mm-hmm. and um, deploy your soldiers in accordance with their capabilities. So you don't tell your soldier who is a transportation person to go do something that an aviation person would do. Yeah. You deploy them in accordance with how they've been trained. And if they haven't been trained that way, then you either get the training or do not deploy them in that area because you're setting them up for failure. You're setting the unit up for failure. Right. right. Um, and so those two stick out to me um, for various reasons. But yeah, uh, and there's there's a whole other podcast to be done. Of there's a whole the, thing. The, the depth that, of yeah. the way West Point thinks about this stuff. I know. But, yeah. And, and yeah. you're constantly evaluated in leadership. Um, I mean, I would say at least monthly, if not weekly, you're, you're looked at in some capacity about your, your leadership ability. So, um, and I enjoyed that. I enjoyed that piece and I was always learning. And I love the other cadets that I got to work with who came from all over the country. And in some cases from different countries when we had um, exchange cadets, et cetera. So uh, I learned a ton and in a very short amount of time. <laughs> so. Great, great. And after West Point, you served in the ordnance branch, both domestically and overseas. And that included yeah. serving as a bomb squad uh, executive officer. You led teams that defused bombs and I- improvised explosive devices. You've been involved in State Department security operations that involved the president and the vice president and the secretary of state. Yeah, um, I remember, I don't know if you remember, but you know, Beach and I know each other from working together at City Year. We had lunch at some conference and you were telling me a little bit about what you had to do. Um, yeah. And I, it has stayed with me because the the kind of courage and the self discipline and the precision that goes into. How do you feel like? What what did you learn from that kind of service? It's a first question. Well, explosive ordnance disposal or EOD is a very unique part of the army. It's a very small group. Uh, I believe at the time there were eight hundred EOD technicians worldwide. I got to work with some great sergeants, Sergeant John Simpson, who told me, taught me a lot. Um, and these soldiers are very different kind of people, right? They, Say more. Yeah. Um, and, you know, very technical. You have to volunteer to go into EOD. You can't be sent to EOD. You don't sign up at your recruiter and get sent EOD. Um, you have to volunteer for it. Um, very important to pay attention to directions. <laughs> yeah, I bet. I bet. Um, Why did you apply? What what attracted you to that path? Um, I, I like the uniqueness of the mission, and I liked how you could deploy and, and do a mission and then come back versus deploying for eight months kind of thing. Mm. Um, I like the specialization and the mix between, you know, the highly technical piece of working with technology and explosives, but then also the the more soft piece of working with different governments and working with different soldiers of different armies um, and and the State Department as well, working with the Secret Service. You're learning how to work with different groups who operate different ways, but you all have the same mission, which is safety of the President of the United States or whoever you're protecting and guarding that trip. Um, Everyone was aligned on that mission. Yeah. (laughs) I have to ask, do they give you any tips for staying calm in the face of what uh, kind of unimaginable pressure? How, how do they guide you to just stay kind of focused? In the I, midst I think of that, that goes kind of to training. Like when yeah. you, when you get trained on something over and over again, um, 
it becomes muscle memory. It's not even memorization up here in your head. It's, it's muscle memory. And, and I also want to say here that the work I did is nothing compared to what many of the EOD soldiers are doing right now. Um, and yeah, so I, I just want to say that, that uh, mm. my service wasn't nearly as intense as some other soldiers, but when you get trained on something over and over again, or you do something over and over again, you're more focused on performing that thing and following the directions or whatever you have to do than you are about um, what's going on around you and the outcomes. You know the outcome if you mess up. So, yeah, it's pretty clear. Yeah, mm -hmm. it's pretty clear. So focus on um, the tasks and the order. The order of operation was very important as well. So um, deliberate... <laughs> Um, concentrated focus. Yeah. It's I mean, important. I, yeah. I, I am in awe of uh, serving in that way. Um, so it is Pride Month, and you identify as a member of the LGBTQAI community. Yes, I understand I'm, we could say queer, right? Yes, is LGBTQAI plus or queer community. Queer I am community. a uh, card carrying lesbian, I have flannel and Birkenstocks. So yes, I'm fantastic, and it's uh, <laughs> we're we're eager to lift up your voice and experience. And you know, one question I have is your whole time at West Point and your military service was under the "Don't Ask, Don't Tell" policy. And can yep. you tell us a bit about your experience of serving the country and doing that kind of courageous service um, when you have to hide your identity? Um, yeah, so I I think I was a little different in the sense that I was um, very much in denial about who I was when I was in the military. And I was um, constantly accused of it, um, or people would say, well, you're obviously gay, like trying to bait me into saying, well, yeah, um, but I wasn't, I had not acted on it. And I had, of course, feelings and thoughts, um, but I was a late bloomer and I didn't do anything until I got out of the military. So even though there were, I would say, I, I think it's fair to say threats um, of people trying to expose me or whatever. I had done nothing um, that would, that could warrant me getting kicked out. Now, what that means is I was highly repressed <laughs> um, during that time. And looking back on it, it's kind of sad, but um, you know, it is what it is. And, and when I think about others' experiences, like, you know, my wife was kicked out under Don't Ask, Don't Tell. And, um, you know, that's a whole other story and a whole other podcast. But in a way, I think I'm sort of lucky um, because I don't think I could have handled that, Max. I, I She was kicked out. and Getting uh, kicked out. If you, yeah, getting kicked yeah, out after yeah. working so long to so serve and, and, mm -hmm. being so, and being so into, you know, wanting to serve to then be removed because of orientation in a way I, I think I I think it was almost better that I was just repressed and silent for me personally I'm not saying repression and silence is good I'm just saying for me personally I wanted to serve so badly I wanted to make such a difference um and I if that had gotten in the way I, you know it would have been really tough for me to handle yeah. I, I don't know if I could have survived that to be honest with you yeah yeah. And I know you've said you'd, you'd, you'd gladly go back and, you know, if your body could handle the physical fitness, you'd go back, but you're disappointed in yeah. that. Can you say a little bit more about the, I, the sex uh, in the military? 
Um, yeah, there, there was just, you know, I, and, and what I experienced wasn't anything compared to what a lot of women experienced, but I, I love the camaraderie and I loved working with many of the soldiers, but there was always a few that, you know, I was just like, really, you know, and, and that had nothing to do with the gay thing. It was more just, oh, well, you're a woman. You know, I had a colonel say, you know, you're, you're such a good soldier. It's too bad you're a woman. Um, and I was like, um, okay. You know, I just, you know, after a while it's, you know, when you get, it's kind of like the ocean, you go swimming in the ocean, the ocean continually tries to throw you out. And so you swim around and have fun. And then finally at the end of the day, you go home. Right. Mm. And (laughs) it's like that. It's, It's like, how many times do I have to hear these comments to finally say, okay. And, and that was the thing, you know, I had recruiters calling corporate recruiters calling me on the phone saying, we want you, we'll pay you. You're amazing. And then I had army people saying like, Oh, you're great, but it's too bad. You're a woman. And it's like, okay. <laughs> wow. Um, so it wow. just got really old. And um, yeah. And then there was also, you know, just the, the way the military was at the time, you know, I, I remember being at a, a banquet and uh, I think it was called the dining out. So you have soldiers and their spouses. So mostly male soldiers and their uh, female spouses, certainly no, no gay couples right. at the time were there. Right. I remember sitting across from a colonel and I'm just a lieutenant at the time. So there's a big difference in rank and age there. He was my um, higher up, uh, you know, commanding officer. And we're sitting there and he's talking and he's very, you know, it was like right out of central casting. He's like, well, when I was over there and then, you know, talking like that. And he reached over to grab some salt on the table and when he did so, he kind of reached across his wife to get it. And when he went to do that reach, she flinched. She cowered. Mm. And it was a split second. I, I saw it and I was like, oh. And I instantly knew where I was in relation to this man, mm. <laughs> where I ranked as a female. Right. Because if he's going to beat his wife, he doesn't give a about right. me. Right. So anyway, um, you know, little things like that that you see and you're like, yeah, okay. Uh, And so by the time I'm getting recruiter calls when I was a captain, they called for a few years. I wanted to stay in. And then I was like, you know what? I'm done. Mm -hmm. You know, Um, and my mom needed me family requirements. So but if I could have stayed, I would have if it Mm -hmm. was more conducive to everything, more welcoming. Yeah. Or just like, you know you're a great soldier period, not you're a great soldier too bad. You're a woman. How about you're just, you're a good soldier. And like, yeah. that's it. You know? yeah. <laughs> so, anyway, well, thank you for disappointing. Thank you for sharing those stories. Um, yeah, sure. And let's follow your path. So you end up saying yes to one of these recruiters and you find yourself mm-hmm. in the, in the corporate world. And I got to hear the story. You go into pharmaceuticals, yeah. they give you the lowest performing team. And in six months you turn it into the highest performing team. Tell us, tell us that story. How'd that happen? <laughs> Yeah, well, so I get into sales and and my last job in the army was I was at a college. I was teaching ROTC and I was also recruiting, which is essentially sales. And so I was learning a lot about sales and frankly, messing up quite a bit, uh, you know, in my conversations with kids and getting them to join ROTC, but I was learning. And so as I was learning, I was getting better and recruiting more um, students to join ROTC and providing them an opportunity to even go to college because some of them were financially barred from it. Um, so I get into pharmaceuticals and, you know, they take you through, you know, the product and the sales and the selling cycle 
and all that. And so this is the same thing. Understand the product, right? The same thing as EOD, right? Understand the product, understand the bomb, understand the technology, understand what you have to do, and then go down in order uh, the selling cycle. I can do that. And then they give you a car, they give you a credit card, and then they give you drugs to sell. Um, and, and that's a mission, right? And then they give you a list of doctors to go see. So I have every tool I need, right? And, and a paycheck, that's nice too, and, um, and bonuses. So I have incentive. And I, I excelled. I really liked it. And I, I wasn't the typical sales rep. You know, usually they're really young and they're very good looking. I was neither. Um, but I was, I was determined, focused, and organized. Um, and I would plan my work and work my plan every day. And so that enabled me to get promoted. And uh, I was sent out to the West Coast. And I took a team that was 15th out of 15 uh, or districts in the company. And my first order of business was to just go talk to the sales reps and see, you know, how, what's up? How are they doing? What's going on? And they were all varying experiences, ages, uh, different demographics as far as like who they were calling on. Some were in, you know, urban like San Francisco or Seattle or Portland, and some were in suburbia or even rural locations. Uh, and I had one in Hawaii, which was really cool to understand. Got to make that. sure to visit that person. That's a well, very yeah, important. Right. <laughs> you know, very first visit. No. <laughs> um, but just to understand all the different uh, basically terrain right? Uh, of where my, who my people are and where are they selling? And then working with them individually to see, you know, where can they improve? And, and being also very transparent with them is that if you perform, I can defend you and you get bonuses. And if you don't, you get to this point where you become undefendable. My mission is to make sure that you can get all the bonuses and do well. It's really up to you. I give you the tools, but you have to execute. And I was very plain spoken with them. Um, and so I had some people who were like, okay, let's do it. And other people were like, nah, you don't know what you're doing. You're new and don't worry about it. And, and they ended up moving on because they weren't performing. Uh, so I also let people know that if they get job offers, which is common to talk to me about it, um, to not sneak around or whatever, but just talk to me. And so we would compare, um, compensation packages and more often than not, they stayed, <laughs> um, and then, you know, the ones who felt like they could get a better role, they did. But I was just very transparent with people. And so people knew where I stood and knew where they stood. And, and so um, we got to number one. <laughs> it was, I think it was about five or six months it took us to get there. It was a while ago. But it was, I was really proud of the team. And they, frankly, they were proud of themselves. Sure, sure. Each of them had contributed to that. And then, of course, you know, they got a bonus for that. So it was pretty great. And I love how you see this clear connection between diffusing bombs and creating a high-performing pharmaceutical sales team. It's uh, it's pretty Obviously. amazing. How you, yeah, of course, of course. <laughs> that's that's fantastic. So you spent nine years in that, and then you made a switch to the nonprofit world, which is where our paths crossed at City Year. So yes. tell us why why did you leave the corporate yeah. world? For, so I had a very very interesting conversation with a West Point classmate of mine. Uh, her name is Becky Margiota. She was class of ninety one. And uh, Becky was is a very plain spoken, inspiring woman who I just always aspired to be as cool as Becky. And Becky actually introduced me to my wife, uh, who is my wife is class of 94. So 
anyway, I was sitting, uh, you know, across from Becky at lunch in San Jose, California, and I was asking her about her work in nonprofit, which, by the way, I like to call nonprofit social change work, social impact or social change, because I like to talk about what we do versus what we don't do. What we don't do. Love yeah. that. What yeah. you see is Nike. Nike doesn't say, hey, Nike, we don't make sushi. <laughs> no, Nike says what they do, right? And so yeah. Yeah. Uh, that's what I like to say. So she was part of a, a social change work, a social change organization that was providing homes for the homeless. And she was going all over the country. She ended up uh, housing 800,000 homeless people. It was amazing. Anyway, I so was talking about nonprofit work, social change work. And I said, you know, uh, why, you know, why would you do this or whatever? And, and so she explained her motivation and, and she said, well, do you like your work? I said, yeah, I do. But, you know, there's not that camaraderie and it's not mission focused. It's money focused. And I don't really like that. And she said, well, you should do social change work. And my response to her was, ah, I'm not a hippie. <laughs> Where does that come from? I, know, I don't, I don't even know. It, it, uh-huh. My parents, I guess. And, mm-hmm. uh, Becky almost came across the table at me. She, she let me have it. And, and she was, yeah, she was very plain spoken and basically said, I was insert as many explicatives as you want in there. And that I was a total jerk for saying such a thing. And that if I really love mission-based work that I should do that work. So I did, I applied and got into city year where is that's where we met. And, Mm -hmm. um, and that was over 15 years ago. So The so Becky flies. was right again. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. She was right again. She was right on my wife, and she was right uh, on on my work. So anyway, it's how was it? Um, you know, you became the executive director of City Air San Jose. You're, you know, for our organization, New Politics, that works with both military vets and with national service folks. Right. What was it like making a kind of transition from the military service world to the national service world? Uh, well, there, you know, there was a lot in common about mission-based work and taking young people who are, in some cases, untrained or untrained in the, in the work that you're going to do. Um, but there was also, frankly, there was some discrimination. Uh, people were like, oh, you're corporate, you don't know, or, or you're prior military, you're going to make us march. Just a lot of assumptions, um, which I, I don't know, I thought was interesting. Um, and I remember, you know, the site was struggling. It was in debt. It was $750,000 in debt, uh, which I was not told prior to joining really? the organization. No. Wow. Um, and when I found out, I, I considered quitting. Like, that wasn't cool, you know, <laughs> that you all did that. But my wife said something pretty interesting to me. She goes, you're not a quitter. And that's a challenge. You love a challenge. And give it six months. And uh so five years later, five and a half years later, <laughs> you know, I, I, the staff and I together uh, turned the, the site around. The board was uh, amazing uh, in their support and, and also new, getting new board members and all that. So it was, it was a lot and it was incredibly rewarding. And I, I really enjoyed my time with City Year and the work that we did. Uh, we realigned on a lot of things that we were doing. We were kind of all over the place with the different things that that particular site was doing. So I made some tough decisions of cutting out certain programs and focusing on the in-school and after-school tutoring and mentorship program. Um, and, and that served us well and donors liked it. And so that was great. And I also took the site over in 07. And so I went right into the 08 recession. 
Um, yeah, I mean, this. Wow. Wow. <laughs> but we cleared the seven hundred fifty thousand dollar debt. We paid that off, and um, during a recession, like through a recession. a recession. Yep. Incredible. And we made it through the recession, and then we grew. Uh, we grew at the tail end of it, and um, and then kept growing. So. Again, transparency, mission focus, training, accountability, um, standards, all of these are all the same things that I learned my first year at West Point. And it's yeah. just a matter of implementing them and, ins- you know, inspiring folks to, to aspire to that. And it is very simple. Like if you want to join the team and be a part of this cool, and if this is not for you, have a great day. <laughs> it's very so not everybody likes to do this work. Yeah. And that's fine. So, um, just being very transparent about it. So. Love it, and amazing to see the theme from the you know uh, diffusing bombs to selling pharmaceuticals to kids who are doing service in high need schools, and to just see the underlying theme of this is what it means to lead high performing teams and to get great uh, outcomes. To, yeah, it's awesome. Um, so I do want to get to you know, given the fact that we're at new politics, I want to get to the political part of the story here. Okay. So. Um, you decide to run for Hillsbury city councilor in your, uh, state of Oregon. Tell us, you know, when, when was this moment when you realized I need to step up politically? Well, that was a long fuse on that one, Max. Um, so in San Jose, I had been approached when I was the ED executive director at city year, I had been approached a couple of times to run for city council. And at the time I had very young kids. My wife was a police officer in San Jose and we had sort of cursorily discussed it and she wasn't into it and it just didn't fit. The other thing I saw were that when men ran for office and they would say something, people would be like, oh, I agree with him or I don't agree with him. And then when a woman would run for office, she would say something and they would talk about her hair or her clothes. And I'd already been through that. I'd I'd already been through that in the military where it's like, well, you're a good soldier, but so I'm like, I don't need that again. And with my little kids and all the things, I just, it didn't fit, but it did stay in my head. (laughs) Um, And because people said it often. Yeah, I bet. Uh, And then uh, moved up to Hillsboro, Oregon. We all, you know, family moved up here and I was here for about a year and a half uh, before I went back to work. My, my wife, um, is a police officer right now in Hillsboro. She's a lieutenant. And so while she was getting reestablished in a new department, I was taking care of the kids and volunteering like a nutcase. I, I just was just volunteering everywhere um, and the schools, especially, but at parks for political campaigns, whatever I could do, I was volunteering. And that allowed me to learn about the city very quickly. And find friend groups, et cetera. And then within six months, actually, I started hearing you should run for office. And I was like, I just got here. (laughs) Um, And I took it as, as a compliment and I still do. And I felt I had a lot more to learn and all that. Um, And then there were two things that happened. So one of them was um, I had heard about Emerge Oregon. And so at the time, a woman named Jillian Shoney was leading it. And I was driving back from work or was doing something, but sitting in traffic in like July or August facing West at 5 PM with the sun in my face. And I'm sweating bullets sitting in my car in traffic, listening to this NPR story 
about Emerge. And Jillian says, women have to be asked seven to 10 times to run for office, whereas a man will just wake up and decide to run. And I'm sitting there <laughs> sweating, thinking I've been asked way more than 10 times. And I was, I was feeling guilty. <laughs> Jillian, a person who I'd never met, never met through the radio, never met through the uh -huh. radio, reached through and just like slapped me in the face um, and said, and she even said, so if you've been asked, you should think about running. So I was like, Ugh. I make it home, talk to my wife about it. She's like, oh, okay. You know, so that was one thing. And then the final straw was um, my wife was tasked to be on the security detail for Governor Brown, the governor of Oregon, when the governor was visiting our county. And so she told me like this day, I'm leaving really early. It's going to be a long day. And okay. So, uh, and I was working at the time, but anyway, so she does the day and she comes back. She left really early. She comes back. It's like 11 o'clock at night. She drops her gear on the, uh, you know, when she comes in, which she doesn't do, she would normally carefully put her gear away, right? She puts everything just down on the ground, walks right up to me, like weirdly close to me and says, you need to run. What happened that and day? I, yeah. Well, so I'm like, okay, what's up? And, uh, and she said, I saw what governor Brown did all, all day. And you do that every single day you need to run for office. And so she wasn't saying run for governor, but she was saying she saw this political person doing her day and I do that already. And so whenever anybody asks me like, who's the first person you talk to when you're thinking about running for office, I always say your spouse because your spouse has your back or not. I've seen both versions, not pretty on the ones that don't have. Yeah. Your back. Yeah. We've seen that and, too. Yeah. Right. And, um, and so that was the final straw where my wife came to me unsolicited and said, yeah, we've been talking about this for a long time. And what I saw today is what you already do uh, run. So I'd already talked to a counselor, a city counselor. So I talked to more uh, counselors and you have to read the, the landscape, the terrain and understand the geography that you're going into. Um, so I educated myself on that. And then um I saw the timing was right. It was about a year from that point that I would run. And then I just started preparing. I applied to emerge. Um, and so I ran in 2018 and won and um, started my political career in January of 2019. Amazing. Amazing. But uh, well, one first question, which we, you know, uh, ask all of our candidates how did your military kind of service background influence your running the campaign? Well, I mean, there's the, the larger question of, not even question, the larger um, calling of service and duty and community. Um, and then there's the piece about ethics, because ethics are sometimes not present in politics, um, are oftentimes not present in politics, which is sad. Um, so bringing that, but then there's also just the organization of running a campaign. Um, so I was lucky and I had a great campaign manager who we're still friends, which is important to say. <laughs> it doesn't always happen. <laughs> doesn't always happen. Um, and so working with her and many other people who came out to support me, 
but this is now deploying soldiers in accordance with their capabilities. This is know yourself and seek self-improvement. These are all the leadership principles that came through. Um, and when I didn't know something, I educated myself on it. Um, so there's the hard piece or the, I, I would say the technical piece of learning about an issue, but then the soft piece of learning uh, of relating to people, meeting people, getting to know them um, and understanding their concerns and likes and dislikes in the community. Uh, um, and so just meeting a ton of people and putting myself out there as a newbie <laughs> to, um, to run. So I did have an opponent. He joined the race with two hours left in the <laughs> registration window. Okay. Yeah. And um, that's always interesting. You know, there's people who prepare and then there's people and um and I've seen other folks who just don't prepare and who think it's just this um, thing you do for fun, which I think is insulting mm -hmm. that, you know, if you want to serve your community, you better be prepared to serve your community. When you get up one morning, you're like, oh, my God, that sounds really cool. I think I'm going to do that with no preparation. I think that's kind of insulting. <laughs> anyway, side note. Um, so I think the military plays a role absolutely in all of those areas. And it can be from strategic all the way to tactical, um, but it's the service calling and and the commitment to ethics throughout the whole process that's important to me. Yeah, and we do have to say you won by with sixty seven percent of the vote in this opposed yep. race, so you didn't just win. You you uh, dominated. Um, can you say a little bit about being a, a queer candidate? What how did that influence your campaign? Hmm. What was that like? Yeah, it was interesting. Um, it's interesting on a couple different ways. First of all, you know, a lot of people, I'm out, you know, people know I'm gay. Um, and so I wasn't really hiding that. And there were people who took issue. Um, and that was one of the things we talked to our kids about that we will receive threats and we will possibly have people coming to our door. Um, and so we talked about safety and all that. Um, but then there's just, you know, what it means to be a woman in office and what it means to be in office, right? Because men have <laughs> received threats too. And my my predecessor and others have received threats on other items um, that was before the city council. So I, I just think it's one other thing that can get people mad at you. And then flipping that around, sometimes, oftentimes people confuse me for a man. And they treat me differently and uh, usually better. And so I've noticed on phone calls and things like that, you know, they're like, oh, Mr. Pace or, you know, whatever. And I, I don't correct them. <laughs> hmm. um, I'm just like, fine, you know, that's cool because it doesn't matter. My gender actually doesn't matter. My service matters, not my gender. Um, so that's something that's always interesting to me that the way I communicate and my voice, um, I'm often construed for a man and okay, <laughs> that's fine. I, I will say the first month I was in office, I get a call from the police chief. I pull over when I see it's him and mm -hmm. I was in the car and I, and he's like, Hey beach, how you doing? And I was like, is, is Jensi okay? My wife. And he was like, Oh my gosh. Yeah. Jensi's fine. Um, but I wanted to let you know, you've received threats in the first month, 17 threats, um, from one person. So 
we again had to talk to our kids about safety and how we exited the house out the back door and through the gate versus the front door. We installed a camera, um, things like that. So, you know, there is that piece to it um, that's always present. And I think it's present across the board for electeds. And I think it's more present as a woman and then as a, as a lesbian. So, yeah. I know, you know, we have our answer in the call program, which is for folks who are, have served in the past and they're wondering about politics. And this comes up of, you know, can I handle some of that kind of antagonism, some of that pressure? How do you hold that? That's a great question, Max. Um, I'm actually personally okay. I understand people are upset and there are things I can do to mitigate um, mitigate threats and, and also increase safety. What bothers me the most are my, is the threats toward me endanger my, endanger my children and my wife. And that's what bothers me the most and concerns me the most. Um, so you do need some thick skin <laughs> um, and you do need to measure and think about the threats that you get. Um, and it hasn't dissuaded me from serving. I have never thought I'm quitting because of this other stuff. I've thought like, man, I don't know. Um, but the threats I've been able to handle and then my kids are older and they can understand it. Um, I think if my kids were free, were younger, I think that would be harder. But, and then again, we talked to them ahead of time before I even jumped in the race, we talked to them ahead of time saying like, this could happen. And so they were like, yeah, okay, we understand. And then when, when it did happen, you know, they willingly went out the back door or didn't, they weren't first to leave the house in the morning, you know, things like that. We put the cars in the garage, you know, <laughs> things like that, um, just to make sure. And, yeah. and that's security training, which I already had. In which you already had, right. Right. <laughs> so, You're kind of uniquely qualified to, to uh, yeah, handle so, these things. So right. There's that. Right. But there are also things that had nothing to do with me being a woman or gay or, you know, people mad at me for whatever reason. And that has to, you know, that does take a toll. Um, and, you know, you have to balance that with, you know, what is their specific issue? You know, I had a guy, he, 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 I knew he had an issue with me and others on council and he said, Hey counselor, it's good to see you. And he shook my hand and, and so, or he held out his hand. So I shook it. This is pre COVID and he pulled me into him really close, like pulled me physically into him and was like, don't F with my thing. It's, it's a long story. Yeah, um, yeah. And, uh, and I was like, wow, really? I looked at him. I was like, really, man? this is how you roll. Um, and then he let go, you know, it was a power play. Yeah. Um, I wasn't hurt in any way, but I was like noted. <laughs> yeah. 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 So I I'm loving the whole elbow tag now with COVID. <laughs> so, right. Um, God. And I found out later that that man did that to other people on council, including the men. Yeah, sure. So that wasn't discriminatory. He he was equal opportunity bully on that. Right, one. <laughs> right, right. Um, you know, but that does happen. It happens. And and that's you know, that does come with service. But the aggregate is I know, Max, that there are businesses open because of city council. 
I know that there are people who still have a job because of city council. I know that there are homeless people who have a place to go because of city council. Um, that and more make it worth it. So I can focus on that guy who did that or the threats, or I can focus on the great work that the whole council does as a team with healthy debate. Um, I'm really proud of our council, to be honest with you, and how we debate. Um, we have served this community and served through COVID, and in my opinion, in a very powerful way. And that, to me, makes it worth it, all that other weirdness. Yeah. Um, so I'm proud of that. I'm, I really am. Uh, when I walk past a business that our city made a, a grant to that enabled them to stay open and they're still there and I look in the window and I see employees working, I'm like, yes, it's worth it. That's it's worth it. That's totally worth it. That's what it's about. Amazing. So what advice do you have for, you know, queer members of our community? They've served in the past. They're, they're wondering if maybe they should step up. What advice do you have for them? Uh, well, I would ask them to understand their why, which I know that um, new politics helps them discover that and work through that. Um, talk to the significant others or people in their lives um, to ask about support because they lean, you're going to lean on, on folks in your life. Um, and then do the research of, you know, what are you most interested in? Um, because if it's education school board, if it's land use, then it's planning commission, um, you know, and depending on what your city offers and it could be council, right? Who knows? It, it could be um, working on a governor's task force. It really depends on your interest. I, I like a broad scope of topics, not just one topic. I love to talk about land use, housing, homeless, business development. I love all of those things and they're interactive, right? They all feed on each other. And that to me is exciting. I know other people who are like, I'm all about education. Education is everything. Cool. So find your passion, do the research. Like when's the next opening? Are you in the right geographic location to run for that position? Um, do you feel that you could move the dial? Is the, is the body current that as it currently exists functional, right? Or do they snipe at each other? Um, you know, and, and does that excite you when you want to change that, that kind of thing. So it depends on, uh, on what your passion is, how much support you have, and then, um, you know, choosing what, what position you want to go for. And I will say, um, you know, there are a couple ways you can find out if you're loved. And one of them is when you get hurt. And then the other one is when you run for office. Say more, say more. Um, when you call somebody up and say, I'm running for office. This is what I'm doing. This is why I'm doing it. I was um, like, it makes me emotional when I think about it. Um, people came around and they were like, awesome. Mm. How can I help? And, um, you know, some people were like, are you sure you want to do that? <laughs> um, right. But most of them were like, yeah, let's do this. Um, how can I help? And I had people coming out of woodwork for me and people that I had met once and they're like, Oh yes. Yeah, you know, so-and-so told me you're running. I'm going to canvas for you this weekend. I'll be there and help door knock for you. And I'm just like, Whoa. Um, and I remember at one point thinking, no matter how this election turns out, I have so many new friends and new connections through this work. 
um, that it was totally worth it. And of course I want to win. Um, right. <laughs> handle it. Yeah. Um, of course I want to win, but even, even still like the work to prepare uh, is, is worth it. And it got me even uh, deeper into my community. Uh, and I also had a long runway, Max. I, I want to say that make sure you got a long, if you can, Make sure you have a long runway so you can do this work over time. Most of the down ballot positions, you are working full time while you're running for office. So a longer runway is better. Um, that's the model I did. What does that mean? How long is a long runway for, um, for in your case, city council? Oh, well, what did that mean to you? I mean, I the conversations happened over like a decade, but mm-hmm. the actual running um i started in 2017 having conversations my wife in 2017 came back and said you need to run and that's when i started having conversations that summer then i did a program that the city put on uh civic leadership academy that's where i met the amazing woman elizabeth case who was my campaign manager and then did emerge in 2018 uh which was the year i ran mm-hmm. and so I would, I would say it was over a year of prep uh, and then attending council meetings, right? I, my favorite thing ever is when people say, I'm going to run for office and you say, how many meetings have you attended? And they said, none. <laughs> it's like, I'm going to run a marathon. Oh, when was the last time you ran? Yeah. I never <laughs> run in my life. And it's like, you are insane, right? So you, yeah. you're signing up for 26 miles and you can't make it to the mailbox. Okay. So um, give yourself a long runway. Mine was, I would say, a year and a half. And um, give yourself the time to prepare and learn. Learn about you (laughs) and learn about what's going on in your community. The dynamic of the body that you want to join. Understand that you have one vote on that body. And that if you're a single issue candidate, it's probably not going to come out well for you. Mm-hmm. Um, run for the overall impact, not because you want a stop sign at a certain intersection. Just don't do that to yourself or or your community. <laughs> mm-hmm. so, anyway, uh, so that's the long runway I, I had over a year and a half. Great. So, Thank you. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So we're getting close to our time limit here. And okay. a final question for you. It's Pride Month 2021. Yes. It's- kind of incredibly complex moment. There's a lot of signs of progress and acceptance and also a whole lot of signs of discriminatory laws and ongoing violence against members of the trans community. Complex moment. What do you hope Americans are thinking about and reflecting on during Pride Month 2021? Mm. Oh my gosh. Um, Max, I am tired of explaining why I'm supposed to be at the table (laughs) and everybody else is too. And, and I, I know that it's even harder for LGBTQ AI community members who are people of color. Um, It's even harder for them. Right. And I, I want a time where we don't ever even, you know, like I see debates going on out here in Oregon about cities flying the pride flag and they don't want it up. And, and um, I was just had a conversation yesterday at a baseball game uh, 
And this woman just had no idea about certain issues in the LGBTQIA plus community. And, um, and then when she did, you know, when I told her, she was like, well, that's, you know, that's stupid or whatever. And, and I just, I, I, I'm like, really? So equality, equity, fair treatment. I'm talking to a woman. Um, those things aren't important to you. And she goes, I know my place in the world and you should know your place too. Um, so I was like, okay. <laughs> wow. Um, wow. You know, so it's, it's just exhausting. And, and I just wish people would um, see us for who we are, which are people in the world that happen to be oriented this way. But when I go to council, um, I'm there as a community member wanting to make great decisions for our community that benefit the most amount of people possible. And I get to do it through a certain lens. And all of my other counselors have their lenses. Um, and they all add their in- input to it as well, uh, and which makes it a great council and, and makes it, you know, our decisions strong. So what do I wish? I, I wish it wasn't an issue. I, I wish LGBTQAI plus people didn't have to fight. And I, I, I don't wish I wish no one had to fight. Um, for equity and equality. It's, 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 um, it's 2021, man. (laughs) And we're still talking about this. And yes, we've made strides. Absolutely. The fact that I even can be out and open with my wife in public, that's a big stride. But the fact that there's still people trying to pass laws against us, and especially trans folks that have, you know, they were even discriminated against inside the LGBTQAI plus community. Uh, it's like enough is enough. Let people be who they are and let them serve or not. Let them just be in the community as they are. Mm. That's what I would hope for. Thank you. Thank you. Well, Beach, thank you for all the ways you have served. Thank you for sharing your story with our community. As always, I just feel honored to get to spend some time with you and just really appreciate your making time for this. Thanks, Max. Thanks for the opportunity. This has been the New Politics Podcast. I'm your host, Max Clow. Thanks for listening. And I hope you can join us for our next episode when we meet another servant leader who's chosen to step up and serve through politics. If you want to learn more about New Politics and the candidates that we support, please check us out online at newpolitics.org. And as always, I'll leave you with this question. How do you feel called to serve at this critical moment for our nation? Thanks for joining. See you next time.